the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report, and it is time to catch up. We've got a lot to cover today, but I want to start today. Well, uh, we'll talk in a few moments with our old friend Ted Malik. I like to always talk about who's coming. Uh, Ted Malik will be with us, and we'll talk with a new author who I have not spoken to before. um, He's written a piece at The New American, thenewamerican.com. You know who wrote over there? Alex Newman has written there. I like that website. And uh, this gentleman, uh, Selwyn, is his first name. Uh, Selwyn, I've been practicing because I've got to talk to him and I don't want to mispronounce his name. I've never heard of that name before. Um, and we will, uh, we'll talk with him. He's written a piece in, um, the New American about how there are places where the counterculture is, um, uh, the counterculture young people are embracing conservatism. In this case, traditional Catholicism in New York City, there's a neighborhood, I guess, uh, where people have gone. His name is Selwyn Duke. We'll talk with him in a few moments. But before we do, let's get to what you need to know today. And what you need to know today is there, if there is an, uh, an epidemic of uh, fake news, and there is, what, what do you think about history? When you realize that the people who are doing news so definitively are lying the question you have to take in your head, you say, well, were they lying just starting with Trump or were they deceiving us before? It looks like they were deceiving us before, right? That would be, it seems like that's the right assumption. So fake news isn't just new. It may be exacerbated by Trump. It may be worse under Trump, whatever, but I don't think it's new. So now you say to yourself, what about history? What do we know about history then? And what do we say about history? Well, one of the ways that I love to now that I, I, I maybe now now that I have thought about this more, have more experience, maybe I have more clarity. I like to watch who are trotted out as historians. So Michael Beschloss over the last three or four weeks has been out on MSNBC. He likes the attention until he became a, um, a stalwart on Morning Joe with Joe Scarborough and me. Brzezinski, the MSNBC show that is as shrill as anything to the left. It just preaches to a far left choir all the time. And Michael Beschloss has become a regular over there and he's become hysterical. Until then, I would have said he was he's always called a presidential historian. And I would have said, well, he's a presidential historian. He's written books on the presidents. Now I watch him and I think he's a propagandist. And so he, he has brought into question my uh, uh, my willingness to call him a presidential historian. I can't say I've written, I mean, excuse me, I've read his stuff. So comes now Politico with a piece on Reagan. And they want to say that Trump, uh, the headline is Trump didn't kill Reaganism. These guys did. And it goes into this piece and it's in the magazine. So that's a long piece. It, by the way, the new thing in, uh, in journalism is not to do a long piece, but to do a three or four or five paragraph summary of what you want to be said 
and then to do a transcript of a lengthy interview with someone. That's a new concept. As far as I can tell, there, there used to be interviews with people, but it was relatively uh, less common. And usually you'd get these lengthy pieces where people had to write an, an article, an essay on someone with some context and some descriptions. Because if you just do the, an interview transcript, what you get is what the person says, what, how they want to present things, how they want to persuade you. It's got its own value. But it used to be you get these, especially in these magazines, a political magazine and New York magazine, New York Times magazine, lengthy pieces that gave you context about, you know, who, where someone lived and what they did and all. And whether it was dishonest or not, maybe it was dishonest. Um, that was different than this idea of just writing a piece uh, and including a transcript. So it comes now, Politico um, now wants to say that, So the book is by Nicole Hemmer. She's an associate professor of history at Vanderbilt University, and she's written a book called Partisans. The conservative revolutionaries who remade remade American politics in the 1990s. And she's an expert on the right wing media. Well, what she goes on to talk about, I don't even need to tell you, it won't won't surprise you, is that Reagan was amazing. He was uh, he was wonderful. He was kind. He was not a harsh guy. He wasn't a bitter guy. He was a sweet guy. Everybody loved him. And it was only after Reagan that everybody got tough and played hardball. I mean, it's, it's incredible. It's like they blacked out. Reagan was a hard Reagan was a, he was a sweet guy. He was a, a sunny personality, but he was a, his campaigns were hardball campaigns. He almost unseated the sitting president of the United States, Gerald Ford, in 76 in a really tough campaign. He lost uh, briefly in 72. I think he ran but 68. He wanted to run and couldn't he, uh, because Nixon played hardball. Lyndon Johnson played hardball. Kennedy played hardball. I mean, the idea. But back to this is that somehow Reagan was this halcyon days and that everyone was supposed to blame. And, and here's the blame. Here's the kicker. We're supposed to say that the line is that Reagan was a sweet guy. And then afterwards, things got extreme, except if you look at the politics, Reagan was along a continuum. He was taking on the globalists, in that case, communist uh, Soviet Union, taking them on all the time, knowing the threat. Then the communist wall falls and there's an interregnum of about 20 years dominated by the Bushes and the Republican Party I'm talking about, where the embrace was towards globalism, towards the new world order. George H.W. Bush used that term towards the idea that we could bring democracy to the world. George W. Bush did that. Clinton and Obama came along for the ride. It wasn't until Trump dramatically shifted the party back back to Reaganism, back to the recognition, recognition that there was a threat in the world. It was world communism. It's in, in this case, China, back to the notion that we wanted a strong military, but not a military that was fighting all over the world. After the bombing in, Ber- in, in Beirut, uh, in Lebanon, where a, bu- a couple of more than a hundred, more than 200 Marines were killed. Reagan's policies became decidedly more isolationist, except as to focusing on building up to keep the strain, keep the pressure on the Soviet Union. So this this historian that is writing that somehow it was Rush Limbaugh and uh, and and the, the extreme Newt Gingrich that somehow changed the Republican Party in the 90s. It's, it's just patently false. If you look at the ascension of the 90s, you saw H.W. Bush, New World Order, Jack Kemp. Bob Dole, the establishment in the Republican Party was about multilateral trade deals, about immigration on demand, about opening up the borders even more. 
about this internationalist mindset. It was under it was under uh, Clinton. It was, but it wasn't fought by uh, the Republicans too hard. Was the idea that we would have our patent system be uh, be uh, what was the phrase that they used? It would be harmonized with the rest of the world, which means we would take on the the characteristics of the rest of the world's patent system, which is not as good as ours. Anyway, you get the point. Uh, somehow, but the history they want to rewrite this because the history, the pivot in history, the thing that changed American politics. And American policy, and certainly the Republican Party, was Donald Trump in 2015 and 16. You couldn't be a candidate nationally without having the positions that the Trump campaign were articulating in 15, 16. You can't have them today. Against the multilateral trade deals, against the internationalist movement, against the communist Chinese, willing to take tariffs, which is a, a trade shift, right? A big trade shift. And, uh, and it's amazing. So, But my point here is two points. One, if you think that history is honest, then I've got fake news to show you. And if you think then that with clear eyes that history is not honest, it brings into question a lot of stuff, doesn't it? It brings into question a lot of what we're told about what we're told about things, about policies, about how they happened. I mean, you don't have to look far to see other places where they quote the Civil Rights Act and they say how, you know, the, the modern day Republicans. In fact, this, this professor says that modern day Republicans who oppose the Civil Rights Act at, in longstanding. It was the Democrats that opposed the Civil Rights Act. It wasn't the Republicans. There were a few. It was mostly the Democrats in the South that opposed it. And I don't know anybody now that's not. There are aspects of the Civil Rights Act that people say got out of hand that are used oddly and not the way it was intended. But it's, it's the idea that a professor of history is, is selling this, this, you know, oh, Buchanan. They drag in Buchanan and say Buchanan was extreme and all this. Buchanan wasn't extreme. Buchanan was not. He, he was not extreme. He's not extreme now. Buchanan has as the marks of the modern Republican Party in terms of the internationalists more than almost anything. And also in terms of, I guess, in terms of the, the uh, family and uh, the, the idea of, uh, of a nation. But it's not, again, it's, it's, it's fake history. It's fake history. And it's, um, it's amazing. It's eye-opening is the word I'd say. It's eye-opening. It makes you realize how, in the name of all that's good and righteous, do you look back now and understand exactly what happened? You know, let's say another one. I, I tell someone, when, um, when, when uh, Donald Trump, stood up on the, at the debate stage in St. Louis, Missouri, in October of 2016. And the, concept, the, 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 um, the discussion was about pro-life. And he said, I'm pro-life. I think it's a baby. And he said, Hillary, you don't think it's a baby. Are you willing to kill the baby? I'm not, or something like that. And then he went on to appoint three Supreme Court justices, and they rolled back Roe v. Wade. What more do you want? If I if I just take the names out, if I said to someone right now, a conservative, I said, uh, there's a guy named Joe Smith or, or, or Tom Jones, Tom, Tim Smith, Tom Jones, whatever, make a name up, you know, Joe Sixpack. He, he says he's pro-life. We don't know for sure, but he says he's pro-life because it's a baby. He's winning for pray one for president. And now he pointed three judges. They roll back Roe v. Wade. Wouldn't there be statues and parades? That's what would happen, right? As well, it should. It's amazing. All right. That's what you need to know is fake history is as bad as fake news. And I think it's even more common. Visit your schools. Uh, find out if you go to your schools and your school textbooks. We've always wondered about the, the left lean, but forget about the left lean, the obvious liberal biases. You just have to wonder what's the truth. 
Well, you don't have to wonder. I think you have to wonder as uh, Ted Malik, I was talking with him to prepare for his interview in a few minutes. And he said, I forget how he phrased it, but he said, if the mainstream media is for it, I'd say go the other way, 180 immediately, and you'll know you're in the right track. So, all right, everybody, we'll take a break. That's what you need to know. We'll be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report, back in a moment. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. And uh, interested, a couple of uh, weeks ago, we spoke with my old friend Bill Hennessy. And Bill Hennessy was uh, talking about, he had written a blog post, Bill Hennessy, well-known Tea Party founder, and uh, writes a, a uh, uh, writes a blog. And he was writing about the fact that having a rosary-saying Catholics seem to have been on a, I don't know, on a list of people that might be extremists. Uh, and so... <laughs> I wanted to visit. I saw a piece over in the New American. If you go to newamerican.com, excuse me, thenewamerican.com, uh, Selwyn Duke wrote a piece. It said the title is Traditionalist Catholics, colon, the newest counterculture rebels. And so, first of all, welcome, uh, sir. How are you? Hey, I'm just fine, Ed, and it's great to be with you. We should uh, I should mention that Selwyn is a longtime author. He's uh, written for the American. He's also written over at the Hill, uh, the American conservative world net daily. And um, so uh, Selwyn, um, is this a change or are we just aware of it? And by that, I mean, has there been in America for, I don't know, 20, 30 uh, years, um, maybe maybe post Vatican II, some traditional Catholics that sort of were uh, fitting the description that we're getting to a counterculture or is it really new? No, I mean, I don't think it's completely new, Ed, but according to what I've read, there is a movement, and this is in New York City. That was actually cited in the article in question, the Dime right. Square area. That's a certain neighborhood where you have young people who are actually embracing Catholicism. That's the story. And they're doing it because, as the article puts it, it's actually transgressive. They're going against the liberal status quo or the left-wing status quo. So, no, I don't think it's new, but I do think it's maybe more common because after all, as the left takes over the culture, which it has done as the left really becomes the establishment. Well, if you want to rebel, what do you do? Well, you start embracing <laughs> traditionalism. And of course, that's not the right reason to embrace the faith. And I'm not saying it's the only reason these people are doing so. But nonetheless, you can definitely see how that could be a phenomenon. Not only that, as the culture becomes more rotten and more decadent and more relativistic, I think, Ed, it becomes more obvious to people what's gone wrong and where the truth really lies. I mean, as Sarah Palin might have put it, how's that decadence and relativism working for you? <laughs> uh, we're talking with uh, that's really good. That's we're talking with uh, anytime you can quote Sarah Palin in a in a, in a piece uh, in an interview. That's pretty good. Selwyn Duke is our guest, the author, the new American. Uh, I will put over there. The new American.com is where his piece is. I'll put it up on social media. As you mentioned, you're referring to it. And, and first things uh, um, essay written by uh, Julia Yost. Um, I guess I, I think it might, it's interesting. You've said that I, I was talking with a friend of mine, Mark Schneider, who has been on the program before, who's a big advocate for nuclear uh, power. And, and he was sort of making this joke saying, because all of the left has ascended and, and all the greenies are in charge, he said, some of the young people are rebelling against them and want nuclear, meaning, you know, like uh, yeah. we want a cheaper. And I don't know if that's really true. He was sort of joking. But um, what what is the um, 
at the same time as this this conversation with younger people, we, we do see uh, most of the polling or surveys show less and less attendance at church. Right. So, I mean, we're it, it, it's not exactly a revival. Um, it's a, but maybe it's a, a cultural shift. Is that the way to say it right now? Yeah. Well, you read my mind, Ed, actually, because I was going to point out because I'm always honest with people. I'm not trying to put on rose colored glasses here. I mean, unfortunately, our society continues to gravitate towards what we call the left which really is just movement towards moral disorder. That's the proper way to understand it. But of course, at the same time, we do see an emerging and growing fringe of people who are pushing back against that. And of course, I'm part of that. It's not surprising. I mean, like I said, there was a time in the United States where basically everyone was Christian, where you were even expected to go to church, for instance, if you wanted to be a school teacher, was considered a mark of good character. But now, if you're a true believer, you're considered sort of an oddball. And that's why I tell so many people around me that I'm an alien. I say it jokingly, but I do feel like an alien who sometimes has to interact with the humans. But let me just say, because we were painting a dark dark picture that, yes, it is true that faith is dying in the West, but it's also true that the West is dying. And what people should know is professional demographers are telling us, Ed, that actually over the course of the next few decades, the world overall is going to become more religious, not less religious. And in fact, and in fact, this will surprise many people because they talk about the death of Catholicism. Well, worldwide, even Catholicism is growing at a rate slightly greater than the rate of population growth. So mm. the picture is is not as dark as people might think. You can stop me if I'm going on too long, but no, no. I would say one reason why we're going to see religious people constituting a larger percentage of the world is that secular people basically don't reproduce. They have very low fertility rates. As the demographer, I think he's a demographer, Philip Long, Longman put it, he said, really, the only people who you see reproducing are religious people, whether they're religious Jews, Muslims, or Christians. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Selwyn Duke is our guest. Again, he writes over at the New American, this piece of the New American uh, dot com. I'll put it up on social media. Traditionalist Catholics, the newest countercultural rebels. Uh, it's funny you say that. You know, it did get a lot of attention um, when Elon Musk uh, tweeted something about how there's not, you know, the birth rate's too low. And I think he was sort of talking about himself. I think he had, he's a father of nine children. Not not exactly <laughs> our role. He's not exactly our role model on uh, on marriage or on uh, committed relationships. I think it's with at least three women, uh, different women. But, uh, yeah. but he brought that up. And a lot of young people suddenly were talking about, well, what is the birth rate and what is the uh, what is the reality of that uh, back for a second? Dime Square is Dime Square in New York. I mean, you know, it sounds good, right? It's a, it's a clever name. Yeah. And it's a, it's a is it happening in other places? I mean, you would expect in in I don't know, in Boston, you'd expect in in Washington, D.C. I mean, anywhere there's an urban young professionals. Do we have a sense that that, that this is not just a one off New York thing? You know, I have to plead ignorance. I can't tell okay. you about that definitively, yeah. but I would assume it is because after all, the culture is decadent everywhere. So you see the same forces at work. Yeah. 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 I wondered. I mean, the, the, uh, the, uh, the, the, it, it strikes me as impossible that it would just be New York. It'd just be interesting right. to see yeah. if it's growing. It's like, it's like the homeschooling community. You know, they used to, you talk about, oh, well, Front Royal in uh, Virginia had about, well, now it's everywhere, right? And it, you don't, you don't have to go far to have uh, people tell you that there's sort of uh, homeschooling co ops and all that are growing. Um, it's, yeah. it is, um, I wonder what happens, uh, wh- where the uh, sort of the movement amongst traditional Catholics are. It's hard for me to picture that, meaning, 
uh, traditional mass and the Latin mass. It's hard for me to picture the young people that weren't raised in Latin mass being drawn to that. But that's another, you know, there was some uh, attention to um, uh, what is it? Shia LeBeau, LeBeau, how do you say his name? The actor who announced that he was doing a movie on Padre Pio and uh, there for St. Padre Pio and then became a Catholic um, and said it was the Catholic mass that drew him to. uh, Well, I should say clear. He he found the Catholic mass, uh, excuse me, the Latin mass, uh, very attractive and very helpful for him. Yeah, yeah. No, there's no doubt about it. I mean, I think a lot of people will be attracted to it because it represents tradition. It reaches back through the mists of time. I mean, I'm a convert to Catholicism, Ed, and I love the traditional Latin mass. So it certainly holds appeal. I'll give you another example. I know this young fellow. Well, not so young now, maybe. But anyway, brilliant. I think genius IQ, but he's an atheist. But he went to a traditionalist Catholic mass, Latin mass, and he said, if God exists, that would be the way that he should be worshipped. That was how he put it. That's how <laughs> wow. appealing that's a, the mass was. Yeah. That's interesting. That is uh, and, that's a, that's some kind of testament. Yeah, it's funny. <laughs> and, um, you know, just if I may say something, yeah. you mentioned is this movement more widespread than just New York City? I mean, I think, of course, it would be. I think the focus was on Manhattan because the whole sure. idea is that if you see this movement, even in Manhattan, the den of iniquity, that really yeah. tells you something. And <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I if think Man- if it plays if it plays in Manhattan, it's got to be going on in Peoria. But uh, <laughs> let me let me let me ask you again, Selwyn Duke, um, about this uh, more broadly. Um, yeah. If it's counterculture, because the culture has gone so secular and so strange and all, it is interesting. I've got a friend down in Florida who has been organizing folks uh, county by county to to uh, focus. He was actually it predated a lot of the attention on the school boards, but now it's school boards uh, focused and and uh, lots of energy. And it is explicitly Christian. And um, it, he has found that it's more satisfying to people to come towards an explicitly Christian effort as opposed to in the past, say there was uh, uh, the ACLU or even Americans for Prosperity, these sort of political entities and said, oh, you know, come organize to stop the uh, what's going on. His effort is is very and, and he has found that that's been satisfying for the people drawn to him. It's not been insignificant. It, it does make you wonder uh, if if the secular movement and in some sense, the effort, even in politics, to sell to the broadest uh, set of folks, you know, which feel secular, whether it's true or not, is a miss is missing its mark. And, and whether, you know, you're going to see more uh, sort of a targeted um, uh, attention based on on faith communities. Yeah, yeah. Well, look. Certainly, I think it's missing its mark. Now, of course, secularism and liberalism, if you want to call it that, are continuing to win converts because, let's face it, a lot of this has to do with decadence. If you can corrupt people at a young age, if you can corrupt their moral foundation, then basically they're not going to be receptive to the dictates of reason when they get older. Plato, the ancient Greek philosopher, talked about this. He said it was important in the young to develop in them an erotic, and by that he meant emotional attachment to virtue because hmm. if you do that when they age reach the rage age of reason they'll be more receptive to the dictates of reason but on the other hand if you develop in people an erotic attachment uh, attachment to vice well it's just the opposite then of course hmm. they're impossible to reason with so that's what we're seeing but on the other hand like we've said 
there is pushback against this because it should be obvious to many that so-called leftism is, as I said, just movement towards moral disorder. I mean, that's what it is. Maybe it seemed romantic at one time as socialism per se seemed romantic at one time with the Fabian Society in the early 1900s. But, you know, eventually it became a little stale. And the truth is a lie has speed, but truth has endurance. So Hmm. the truth will out. It's just a matter of time. You know, we say that God wins in the end. And in fact, he has already won because he's outside of time. And the truth will always have its appeal. You know, unfortunately, Hmm. though, whether that means America is going to prevail is going to last is a different story. But the truth will always remain. It's interesting, so and I appreciate you taking the time at the New American, again, the New American.com, this piece, Traditionalist Catholics, the newest countercultural rebels, of pointing that out. I do think, I think part of observing the culture and understanding where some of these uh, movements are happening gives us an indication both of what's happening, obviously, but also what is possible, what could be. Uh, be. So I have to run, unfortunately. Selwyn yeah. Duke is our guest. Uh, he's an author uh, and writes all over the place, but this piece is at the New American.com. Thank you, sir. Thank you, and God bless, Ed. All right. Thank you. Thanks. We'll take a break, everybody. Don't forget, visit ProAmericaReport.com, and you can find this link and others there. We'll take a quick break, and we'll be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report. Back in a moment. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Time to catch up with our old friend, Ted Malik. And uh, Ted Malik, as always, is prolific. He is writing, especially over at the American Greatness blog. He's also been uh, known to write a book or two. He's known to uh, uh, (laughs) uh, uh, write essays all over the place and give lectures and all. But uh, for now, we have a lot of his work over at uh, American Greatness. Uh, His newest piece is What is to be Done? That's the one I'm looking at, Ted. The consequences of the big steal are terrifying, but the interests behind it are vast. Um, so welcome back, Ted. How are you? I'm well. Thanks for having me on, Ed. So the big steal, I, I mean, you're willing to embrace it, right? The media has tried to say you can't even talk about it. If you talk about it, it's the big lie. Um, so you, you've, you've gone right towards it. And I think that's important. I think it's a it's important that people have the, the, the guts to do it. But it's also, um, you know, you, you, it's not as common as you'd expect. No, so my theory would be anything that the big media or the mainstream media says, then you should run 180 degrees in the opposite direction. So this is a case where, you know, they've lied about this all along. I mean, the president lost the election, if he lost the election, by 44,000 votes in three states, all of which could be contested. I mean, I say in this piece, one of the nice things Joe could have done to unify the country would be to have audited the vote. Clearly, he wasn't going to do that because they stole the vote. And now we see the FBI is implicated in that theft. Um, You know, we're talking with Ted Malik. Ted, before we get a little bit more into that, and I I should have maybe done this in reverse order. um, Early in the piece, you talk about the, quote, establishment, end quote, and the, quote, ruling class, end quote. Um, And you you referenced C. Wright Mills, who talked about it, but um, uh, Angela Cotavilla also wrote about it. Talk to me about that, Ted. I mean, again, you're someone who um, has uh, been in business and academia at the highest levels internationally. Um, You know, you've written a book on Dobbs 
Davos and your your early days there. You've been in all the places, whether it's Yale or or uh, or uh, you know Oxbridge. I mean, all these places. Um, and yet you're seeing at this point in your career and your life, you're pointing to the establishment saying. It is, in fact, corrupt. Here's what it is. But talk about that. I mean, that's... I, yeah, and I, that. I do that from the inside because you right. also recall I was uh, in the U.S. Senate. I was uh, on the Foreign Relations Committee staff when it was much more bipartisan. I was in the State Department for Ronald Reagan. What I'm saying is we have evolved into a... Because of globalism, largely the ideology, we've evolved into a political situation in America that you could refer to as the Uniparty. So the differences between a Mitch McConnell and a Chuck Schumer are not that great. And they both basically want to keep themselves in power and they want to keep the cash going to themselves. Uh, and that kind of establishment is, of course, very antithetical to what the American founders had in mind. They did not want to have incumbents for life. They did not want professional politicians. They did not want a kind of cronyism. And I think we have two variants today, cronyism on the left and cronyism on the right, and there ain't much difference between them. Well, and, you know, you talk about uh, follow the money. Um, if you look at the size and scope of the federal government and the budgets and the spending and you follow the money, it doesn't go just to the left. I mean, we can all see that it goes to Planned Parenthood and to universities. And, and you know, there's endowments that have grown at Harvard and other places that are massive. But it goes to the businesses on the right or so-called right. The more, let's say it differently, not the right necessarily, to the Republicans. It goes to Democrat interest groups and Republican interest groups. Um, so, uh, Ted, may I ask you, we're talking with Ted Malik, one of your expertise is international affairs. Um, Europe is on the brink of, of freezing to death, aren't they? And and America, they're, they're begging America, they're begging Biden to produce more oil and gas, and he's not doing it. I mean, have you ever seen anything like this? No, you haven't seen that, uh, that case before. I guess during the very cold days of the Second World War, the Europeans were, you know, enmeshed in that atrocity, uh, that went on for some five years, and they basically, uh, uh, those that survived, uh, burned all their furniture. So you might see some furniture burning this winter (laughs) in Europe. They became extremely dependent, almost totally dependent on Russian oil and gas, a very bad strategy in terms of diversification, and now they're going to pay the price for that. Uh, They also decided to get rid of their nuclear power, at least in some cases, Germany in particular, they tried all these uh, alternative energy sources, which our own president is, and his uh, leftist associates are so keen on, and they don't produce that much energy. They produce about 3% of the energy in Western Europe. So who is going to provide the oil and gas for Western Europe when you're at war with Russia over the Ukraine, which could have been settled in three days, in my estimation, never should have happened? Um, who's going who's gonna to supply that energy this winter or ongoing. It's a very disparate situation, frankly, in parts of Western Europe. I think the Italians have covered themselves because they've got an oil pipeline and gas pipeline to Libya. So think of the places they're going to get more crude and more gas. But 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 Ted, isn't isn't aren't we seeing didn't the French, I think it was the French say, you know, to Biden, could you please uh, cut it out and produce more? I mean, isn't isn't there a role for America? I mean, uh, we could we could oh, produce well, more oil and gas. Wrong, he made the wrong energy decision on day one, caving into his left, canceling the pipelines here, but allowing the pipelines uh, in, in in Russia. I still refer to it as the Soviet Union, so I have to correct myself, although with Gorbachev's death yesterday, 
yeah. you know, a person I have met on a number of occasions. I uh, Now I see the difference between Putin and Gorbachev. I would have to say the attempt at being the Soviet Union again. Um, <laughs> uh, 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 Ted, actually, I'm glad you said that. I, I, I'm looking at my notes. I meant to do that early on. Um, you did meet Gorbachev a couple of times and more, maybe more... Um, uh, uh, important or salient, you had interactions before the wall fell, before communism fell. Uh, yeah. What are your observations on Gorbachev? I mean, he reviled well, by he certain- is a, a very important world historical figure because you right. know, he basically, uh, through Perestroika and Glasnost, both allowed change in, in the Soviet Union and it then probably got out of his control. Uh, he, he, he was, I would say, for Russians, he was a, a better kind of human being, not a hardcore communist. I do tell people, and I know your audience would appreciate this, that um, Gorbachev not only had a heart, but he had a uh, both a wife and a mother who were Christians. Huh. And I would not discount huh. the, uh, the ramifications. Yeah for that that is um that's that's very yeah that's very interesting i don't i don't think I'd, i certainly didn't see the comment on the well, mother you're not, gonna, you're not gonna read that in newsweek no no you're gonna read it anywhere actually all right um uh ted uh back uh for a second to your column the recent column in uh, american greatness uh amgreatness.com the, the title of which is uh, what's to be done um and you're talking about the establishment you're talking about the crony capitalism the cronyism that has uh, seized both parties uh you reference china you get to the end and the phyllis schlafly loved this of uh, in her own writings, what's to be done? Um, you actually are, are writing here about um, independent movements, uh, political movements. I'm interested. I, I don't. I didn't quite see this coming when I, I was reading your piece. Yeah. So I have a co-author on this who is, is very strong, a, a Catholic philosopher, Nicholas Capaldi, and um, um, he's been thinking, and we've been talking a lot about. I'm going to say how you reform or how you get from where we are to some better place, and this is kind of stretching our thinking kind of, we're not going to bail out. It's a very Augustinian model, if you were, living in two cities. So we're saying we have to create, help to create this second city, this other city, this city of God, if you will. <laughs> um, and Phyllis would like that term, I'm sure. But um, you know, how yeah, do you do that right. in the university? Yep. How do you do that in the schools? How do you do that in financial uh, relationships? How do you do that in building of companies? And when it comes to the Republican Party, I'm of two minds, Ed. I don't like the one we have because it's dominated by people who are those kinds of unipartyists. Right. I do like the Trumpist, DeSantis, Youngkin elements, and I want to see those ascend. So I'm saying if we can't take that party and make it into what a Republican should be, which is a patriotic, free market, God loving country, uh, uh, you know, God and country kind of party then, you know, we, we've got to find some other way ahead politically. Uh, we're talking again with uh, Ted Malik. A- at the end of that piece, you're, you're writing about um, reform uh, clubs, reform uh, movements. I mean, in the context of, say, national elections, presidential, I, you, I don't think you mean that you want third parties running, do you? No. I'm, oh, well, America's history with third parties is problematic. Of course, right. my favorite one was the Bull Moose Party, but um, it didn't <laughs> right, exactly <of> course. work out. <laughs> so that, 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 that is probably not a winning strategy. What I'm talking about is having a grassroots, so bottoms-up kind of orientation where the people in XYZ city or XYZ community get together and talk about this, you know, kind of on the basis of the Tea Party or think groups or 
I mean, the old model would be a, a Christian kind of discipleship group and, and just kind of walk through where we are, how we got here, what we need to do, what we need to change, and then to take back those levers of power. Uh, I don't think we're going to get there with the same old incumbents. And when our party leader in the Senate says our candidates stink, how do you expect to win in an election? Right, right, exactly. That's uh, that is um, that is uh, telling. All right, um, uh, Ted Malik, already out of time. We've got to go. Thank you, Ted Malik. Hey, what's coming next week, though? What's coming well, next? Next you right? week, you better be careful. I've got an article coming out called "The FBI Exposed," and I know. <laughs> wow, Ted Malik, everybody. I think the people. I think most of our listeners like to get to the end of these because you always reveal what's coming. It sounds so sounds so exciting. So something to look forward to. Thank you, Ted Malik. As always, uh, we will uh, we'll look forward to it uh, next week. We'll take a break, everybody. We'll be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report. Back in a moment. This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report. A daily broadcast from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, a national volunteer organization founded by Phyllis Schlafly and continuing to uphold her legacy by honoring family values, opposing radical feminism, and representing a conservative perspective in our nation's capital. Now the president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, Ed Martin. For as long as it takes was the talking point chanted by President Joe Biden to the press who followed him all the way to Madrid, Spain to cover the recent NATO summit. Ignoring Peter Ducey of Fox News, Biden referred to his cheat sheet and pathetically exclaimed, "Uh, I'm supposed to go down the list here. The first name on Biden's list was an Associated Press reporter who asked Biden about the recent pledge by the Democratic G7 leaders to support Ukraine for as long as it takes. The AP reporter asked, I'm wondering if you would explain what that means to the American people for as long as it takes. Biden simply repeated back, we're going to support Ukraine as long as it takes. We're going to stick with Ukraine as long as it takes to make sure they are not defeated by Russia. Next on Biden's list was a reporter from the Democrat-friendly New York Times who asked Biden how his plan to cap Russian exports would affect the high price of gasoline in the United States. Are you confident that the cap will bring down prices for American drivers? The reporter asked. Apparently not understanding the question, Biden responded, How long is it fair to expect American drivers to pay a premium because of this war? Because Biden didn't seem to understand the question, the reporter explained, The war has pushed prices up. How long is it fair to expect American drivers to pay that premium for this war? As long as it takes, Biden chanted again like a trained parrot, so Russia cannot defeat Ukraine. This is a critical position for the world, he finished. President Biden may have his slogan well rehearsed, but he cannot make the American people get on board with such a ludicrous line of thinking. How can he be so doggedly committed to a foreign war while ignoring the very real threats to ordinary Americans right here at home? We the people are not willing to suffer as long as it takes the liberal world order to shore up their power. Until Joe Biden figures this out, his approval ratings will keep going as low as it takes to wake him up. This has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. As leader of the free world, America has a responsibility to stay strong in economics, industry, morality, and military capability. Never hesitating to say, America first. At phyllisschlafly.com, you'll see why the best foreign policy begins with a strong America. Join the conversation at phyllisschlafly.com. Thanks for listening, and join us again for the Phyllis Schlafly Report. 
back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Hey, let me uh, let me go back and pick up what I started to tell you earlier. The Epic Times with uh, Lee Smith. Um, they have a, He has a program called Over the Target. Over the Target. It's great. It's a TV program every Friday at 11 a.m. East Coast time. It's really super. TheEpicTimes.com. TheEpicTimes.com. Uh, TheEpicTimes.com uh, uh, is where you go. And you, it's a, it is a subscription service. You got to sign up for it. It's not too expensive. If you want to be a part of it, I recommend it. I'm a part of it. I have been for a long time. Their senior people are very impressive. They work really hard to do a good job and uh, they just have been great. So I am um, a big fan and I'm a huge fan of Lee Smith. Lee Smith is one of the great uh, people in this country and journalists and you need to check him out. You need to be on his stuff all the time uh, and be uh, clued in because whatever he's doing, whatever he's writing is super and it's a great program so he had on the program i was on just to tell you a little bit more about it um it was me and uh cynthia hughes from the patriot freedom project and then two other family members um uh, Jerry Perna was one of them whose uh, nephew, uh, unfortunately, uh, took his own life uh, after being sort of tortured uh, by the process. Um, and it was extraordinary. So check out Lee Smith there. Um, he's great. It's great. Lee Smith, theepictimes.com. His program is called Over the Target. You should check it out. All right. Thank you, uh, everybody, for uh, a great week, as always. Especially thank you to our great uh, uh, producer, Noah Dingley, he's the best. And Joanna Spilgar, our associate producer. I'll be back next week. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report. I'll talk to you then. This is the Pro America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Three star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to, he understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.